so like the single most practical advice I think I was ever given by uh, a psychoanalyst and which I'm going to pay forward to people listening now yeah. is, and this is in the context of transference, right? This idea that you enter encounters with preconceptions, anticipations, anxieties, et cetera, about what the other person is saying is that if you make nonverbal noises, people mm-hmm. generally read into that whatever they want and more often than not, we'll just keep going. And so I'm thinking about like, you mm-hmm. know, the, the stereotype of the, uh, the therapist who's always like, mm, mm-hmm, 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 uh-huh, uh-huh. But, but also like the I found... The verbal nod. Yeah, the simple nod, like the verbal no, nod. The verbal yeah, nod. The verbal nod, yeah. But I found this very, very useful uh, in working, at doing journalistic stuff or interviewing people. Hmm. Because like basically if you, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it, now that I'm sensitizing us to it, it's probably going to be ruined. But Well, I do it, uh-huh. Yeah, you do it in classrooms too, right? Like you just keep making noises and generally speaking, people will assume that you're agreeing with them and they'll keep giving you stuff. Yeah. Right. And and I mean, you have to overcome the fact that, and this is something I've had to do doing journalism work, oftentimes interviewing people with whom I profoundly disagree or who simply saying things makes me want to like jump out of my skin is that they'll keep on going and and it's okay for you to make uh mm -hmm, mm -hmm," noises. And that's not the same thing as you're being like, I endorse your views or like, I agree. So you'll get people to just like, they'll, they'll start building up momentum. They'll keep going. Sometimes they'll say things that they really shouldn't say which is, you know, good practice if you're a journalist to get people to do, uh, or maybe it's a good practice. Is it? I don't know. I mean, when we, when we talk about Janet Malcolm in a little while, uh, not, not today, but, uh, yeah, no, we'll, we'll get into that. But, but like, I guess what I'm saying here is like, you're not implicated if you make like a, you know, you just engage in like these like make that noise again. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that noise <laughs> would make me stop. That, I don't know. But that yeah. noise had a, like a, <laughs> yeah. Okay. okay that, that's not it. But more like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Just like I would be upset if my, if I, my therapist made that noise. The full Scooby-Doo like, <laughs> yeah, no, that, that won't. But yeah, it, like not verbal. It's like people keep going. They keep producing content. We're, we're content producing beings and you can facilitate that's that. That's horrible. Flow. That's horrible. <laughs> we are content producing beings. I want you to take that back. We, we used to be rational animals, but now we're content based animals. Um, on that note, are we ready to talk about transference? think so Uh uh-huh about psychoanalysis, politics, pop culture, and the ways we suffer now. I'm Abby Kluchin. I'm uh, Patrick Blanchard. And I'm Dan Yowell. And today we are talking about the phenomenon of transference, um, which is, oh, it's many things, but it is, among other things, the the sort of motor energy of psychoanalysis. Um, Patrick, before I dive into like the Freud of it all, do you want to give a little a little overview? Yeah, let's definitely say that uh, transference is a top 10 psychoanalytic concept. It's, de- it's definitely up there in, in the top, maybe top five even. We, we could all rank it uh, alongside like the unconscious or, or something or defense mechanisms. But uh, Repression. Repression, yeah. yeah. Why, why did I forget that one? I wonder why. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but look, look, like, yeah, it, so this, this term transference, we're going to, Abby will 
walk us through the Freud and we'll talk about it and other sort of thinkers and traditions. But for our purposes, just initially, we can turn to, to Freud's original German word for this. And forgive me for my terrible German pronunciation, but it's, it's Übertragung. God, my, my German only is getting worse. Uh, I guess I'll read it, but but yeah, so, so it's Übertragung. Uh, yeah, and it's, it's there's an omad over the U and not over the A. And the deal with that in, in, in German is, as with a lot of Freud's vocabulary, it's more straightforward than the English translation for re- reasons we can talk about, but also it has some additional meanings or valences. And loosely, it has the sense of like a transmission, right? Um, or like a broadcast, like a TV show could like broadcast it. Of course, that was prior to Freud's time. Though he did record a radio interview. He said radio. Yeah. Though he says radio in the, the essay, The Dynamics of Transference. I think, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's like a broadcast, but it also means like, a, it's, it's like etymologically, it's a it's a passing over or like a transmission or a handing over, but it also has the sense of uh, idiomatically communication in the way like a disease can be communicable mm. right it, it's transmitted it's contagious it, it somehow transmits itself yeah so part of the valence is there or, or the shades of meaning is not just narrowly that it's like a thing that's done but it's a thing that sort of happens and, and that unfolds in kind of like a almost like a middle voice like it's it's not quite active it's not quite passive yeah it's it's a it's a phenomenon. It arises. Yeah, and and we can track or it. Or presents rather than, yeah, yeah presents precise. itself. It's, yeah, it, or like it, it's... I'm trying ap- to think of like a reflexive verb in like French or German like that we don't really have a... It emerges might be one way to think about right. it. Yeah, and and Ford specifically will then use actually other languages to to talk about it more, and he'll talk about it as a, using the French, a mesalliance, like a misidentification or a a bad association or an incorrect association. Mm-hmm. Uh, and more specifically, he'll talk about it as a, a displacement, right? A moving of one thing to another thing and specifically as a displacement of affect. But that, I think that's enough for the etymology there. Yeah. Okay. There's three texts by Freud that I want to like call our attention to collectively. Um, there's, there's more, right? This, this is, this is a concept that is throughout Freud's of, and, uh, Patrick later today is going to talk more about how this has been taken up and transformed in other psychoanalytic um, schools. Um, but but first, okay, so these are some key key ones. Um, so two of them, an essay called first The Dynamics of Transference and one called Observations on Transference Love, they occur in a set of papers that are concerned with analytic technique. Um, so there's the dynamics of transference and then after that, um, this is all in volume 12 of the standard edition, um, there's a set of three papers called Further Recommendations on the Technique of Psychoanalysis. Um, and there's a part one, part two, and a part three. And part three is Observations on Transference Love. Another key essay in here is Remembering, Repeating, and Working Through. The point is that it's grouped with these papers that are on, that are about advice for analysts. They are they are written to analysts. Yes. So we could just to call back to our previous episode, we could situate this at least initially firmly within like that p- first domain of psychoanalytic writing, which is about practice yes. and, and the practical. And then it will have other implications for the metapsychological, et cetera. But it's firmly in Freud's kind of limited writings about technique and praxis. Yeah. Okay. So those are 1912 and 1915, respectively. Let me back up about a decade or maybe even two decades 
um, and say something about transference as a discovery that emerges out of the clinical context. So, so we talked last week in, in our first episode about what is psychoanalysis. We talked about Anna O oh and Freud's mentor, Josef Breuer. And you could definitely say that the initial discovery of transference happens there um, and that this is why Breuer runs away from, from Anna O. Oh. Um, but another place that's important, um, and that I'm guess just going to mention fleetingly here because we're going to dedicate an entire episode to it, is the Dora case, um, which is also called Fragment of an Analysis of a Case of Hysteria. And it is one of Freud's most magnificent failures. Um, it is in the Dora case, which was published in 1905, but mostly written in 1901. So like Freud like kept it at his desk for a long time. Um, and if you read it, you can see why. Um, but it's there that Freud gives us quite a beautiful definition that I want to read to everybody, um, if, you'll, if you'll humor me. Um, and it's a definition that he got to by wildly mishandling the transference. Um, and so this appears in the postscript. It may be safely said that during psychoanalytic treatment, the formation of new symptoms is invariably stopped. But the productive powers of the neurosis are by no means extinguished. They are occupied in the creation of a special class of mental structures, for the most part unconscious, to which the name of transferences may be given. What are transferences? They are new additions or facsimiles of the impulses and fantasies which are aroused and made conscious during the progress of analysis. But they have this peculiarity, which is characteristic for their species, that they replace some earlier person by the person of the physician. To put it another way, a whole series of psychological experiences are revived, not as belonging to the past, but as applying to the person or the physician at the present moment. Some of these transferences have a content which differs from that of their model in no respect whatever except for the substitution. These, then, to keep to the same metaphor, are merely new impressions or reprints. Others are more ingeniously constructed. Their content has been subjected to a moderating influence, to sublimation, as I call it, and they may even become conscious by cleverly taking advantage of some real peculiarity in the physician's person or circumstances and attaching themselves to that. These, then, will no longer be new impressions, but revised additions. If the theory of analytic technique is gone into, it becomes evident that transference is an inevitable necessity. Practical experience, at all events, shows conclusively that there is no means of avoiding it, and that this latest creation of the disease must be combated like all the earlier ones. This happens, however, to be by far the hardest part of the whole task. It is easy to learn how to interpret dreams, to extract from the patient's associations his unconscious thoughts and memories, and to practice explanatory arts. For these, the patient himself will always provide the text. Transference is the one thing the presence of which has to be detected almost without assistance and with only the slightest clues to go upon, while at the same time the risk of making arbitrary inferences has to be avoided. Nevertheless, transference cannot be evaded since use is made of it in setting up all the obstacles that make the material inaccessible to treatment, and since it is only after the transference has been resolved that a patient arrives at a sense of conviction of the validity of the connections which have been constructed during the analysis. Okay, humor me two more sentences. Um, skipping down a little bit. One, 
Psychoanalytic treatment does not create transferences. It merely brings them to light. Second, transference, which seems ordained to be the greatest obstacle to psychoanalysis, becomes its most powerful ally if its presence can be detected each time and explained to the patient. Uh, hearing you read that, it's almost like transference is something that isn't restricted to the therapy relationship. Yeah. Like this is something that I have been experiencing for my entire life. And mm -hmm. that was actually kind of the thing that blew me away when I first learned about transference is it was like a label I could put on all of these interactions with people that I didn't quite understand. Like weird vibes that I would get right off the bat from meeting somebody. It, it was a useful tool. Mm -hmm. I found it really useful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's just so much in... In, in in that text that you just read, right? From the, like, Freud, like, doing this thing which he does in, in so many of his best papers where it's like he's definitely wants to talk about or seems to be talking about something that is narrowly technical. Yeah. Whether it is in the clinical sense or as here or elsewhere in the metapsychological sense. And then he's he's like, well, I'm only talking about this within the context of the psychoanalytic enterprise. And this thing called transference is this thing that happens there but wait what if it's much more than that yes a and so it, it's that double movement of we're gonna get like, to yeah, we're gonna get to that it. in I observations on transference love yeah but it, it is like this thing where he seems to be like it, i just want to flag this as a cool thing about freud right where he's like i'm gonna be giving you something that seems very recondite and technical and then almost immediately or at least without your like catching it suddenly you're into like philosophical interpretations yeah. about questions that otherwise might be played out in, in in discussions of like human nature or human relationships here it's happening within this like nuanced kind of nested way that's very self-reflexive and yeah it's yeah. just amazing yeah okay that maybe gives me a good segue to talk about on transference love um okay so back to these two essays that that i brought up that are from the papers on technique um so from the first one, which we're really not going to talk about a lot today, but we get at least two key um, two key points. One, transference is fundamentally about resistance, not exclusively, but but it is about resistance. And second, that it's important to distinguish between positive and negative transference. Okay, but what I want to zero in on here is the 1915 essay called On Transference Love, which I have bullied everyone here into um, reading or rereading um, because I love it. Um, it is it is absolutely masterful and, and completely devastating. And it's just as much about love as it is about transference. Uh, so don't take this as like the definitive Freudian statement on transference, although it does contain, I think, some of that. Okay. So here's like this. Let me just kind of like walk through the argument. So Freud starts out by talking to analysts about like, okay, the thing, you're going to be worried about all of these, like he's talking to beginners, like the things you're going to be worried about at the beginning, like this and that and the other thing. But after a while, you're going to realize that all that stuff is just like, you know, nothing compared to worrying about transference. Um, and then he goes into this little sidebar about how for people who aren't analysts, um, Love is this thing set apart. Like Freud is such an anti-sentimentalist in some ways, I, I, which I which I love personally as is also somebody who's kind of an anti-sentimentalist. Um, 
So he's like, regular people think that love is this thing that is, that is you know, totally set apart. He has this beautiful line. He says, like, the things related to love are, quote, um, as it were, written on a special page on which no other writing is tolerated. Okay, that's close quote. Okay, psychoanalysts, he says, have to look at it differently. Imagine, if you will, Freud says, a patient um, or a situation in which a patient falls in love with her doctor. And then they go to a second doctor and it happens again. And then they go to a third doctor and what what do you know? It, it happens again and, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so Freud says from a psychoanalyst's point of view, you have to realize that this is not like your own it's not because you're so fantastic that this is happening. It's this—it's the analytic situation that's making it happen. Okay, so far, so good. Freud's like, outside of the analytic situation, um, this is maybe going to produce some hand-wringing from, uh, you know, the patients. The patient is being envisioned as, as, as female here. So like her husband or her father. Um, and, you know, maybe that husband or that father is going to be like, hun, let's put you in a non-analytic. Let's go get, get you to a, a real doctor. But then she's going to fall in love with the real doctor. Too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So given this, like if you're an analyst, what do you do? Okay. First, you recognize intellectually that the emergence of this demand for love, as, as Freud puts it, um, comes from resistance. So that's an intellectual realization. But what do you actually concretely do? Um, and there, there's like a humorous element to this when you think about it. It's, it's, it's deadly serious, this essay, but you also have to just like picture all of these analysts being like, why are these women like why falling all over me? Anyway, um, Freud's like, well, so you could go with these like non-analytic um, social norms, moral, moral norms and be like, okay. I will neither accept nor return these feelings. And also I'm going to insist that my patient renounce these desires. And Freud is like, no, and also no. What he does say is that the analyst has to maintain their neutrality and to keep a good hold on their own countertransference, um, their own feelings towards the patient um, generated in and by the analytic situation. But let's, Freud says, engage in a thought experiment. In order to really flesh out the axiom that, that the analyst cannot physically return the patient's love, okay, like do not sleep with your patients, right? Freud's like, well, what would it be like uh, otherwise if the analyst was like, yes, I give in to the force of your love? Um, and here Freud uses an incredible example. Okay, it's too good. I have to read it. It's really short. The patient would achieve her aim but he would never achieve his. What would happen to the doctor and the patient would only be what happened, according to the amusing anecdote, to the pastor and the insurance agent. The insurance agent, a free thinker, lay at the point of death and his relatives insisted on bringing in a man of God to convert him before he died. The interview lasted so long that those who were waiting outside began to have hopes. At last, the door of the sick chamber opened. The free thinker had not been converted, but the pastor went away insured. <laughs> okay, I love that. I love that. Okay, what does that mean? In other words, the fulfillment of the patient's desires would mean the failure of the treatment. She would have stayed in the realm of enactment 
acting things out instead of transforming that enactment into psychical material to work through. The point is the analyst can neither give in to the desires of the patient nor require the patient to suppress them. He has to treat the love as something unreal, as a necessary situation to be worked through in the treatment. And so Freud adduces all of these reasons as to why this love is unreal. Um, you know, it's all about repetitions and copies of earlier, um, earlier reactions. Um, it's derived from, from infantile sources. And then Freud is like, hold on, wait a minute. Can we really say this love isn't real? And this is like the fantastic twist in this, in this essay. Like you read it and you're like, seriously, like twist. <laughs> um, Freud is like, wait a minute. All these things are the case in everything we recognize as love, aren't they? Like repetitions of infantile patterns, new versions of old reactions. He's like, wait a minute. Um, and he says, this is a quote, this is the essential character of every state of being in love. Um, and he says, if it seems so weird, like maybe consider that being in love is actually more akin, like being in love outside of the analytic situation is actually more akin to an abnormal than to a normal mental state. He tries like one last time to say how transference love might be really different. Like, okay, resistance heightens it. The situation occasions it. doesn't really bow to the demands of reality. It's characterized by this like wild overvaluation of the object of love. And then again, he's like, wait, but all these things that set it apart are what sets love apart. And so like Freud doesn't really get, he doesn't put it in so many words, but kind of what Dan was getting at earlier is sort of like the kicker here is like, so all love is transference love? Um, and before I stop talking, let me say one other thing. Um, I alluded to Janet Malcolm earlier. Um, I, th I think we did this last week too, um, to her book, um, Psychoanalysis, The Impossible Profession. But there's a line that I want to read to you or a couple of lines that I want to read to you about what Malcolm has to say about this because I think they're just like so – I mean literally my copy of this page has come out because I have, I've read this so many times. Um, so this is what Malcolm says about transference reading this essay. She says, the phenomenon of transference, how we all invent each other according to early blueprints – was Freud's most original and radical discovery. The idea of infant sexuality and of the Oedipus complex can be accepted with a great deal more equanimity than the idea that the most precious and inviolate of entities, personal relations, is actually a messy jangle of misapprehensions, at best an uneasy truce between solitary fantasy systems. Even or especially romantic love is fundamentally solitary, and has at its core a profound impersonality. The concept of transference at once destroys faith in personal relations and explains why they are tragic. We cannot know each other. We must grope around for each other through a dense thicket of absent others. We cannot see each other plain. A horrible kind of predestination hovers over each new attachment we form. Only connect, E.M. Forrester proposed. Only we can't, the psychoanalyst knows.
I'm going to go sit in the shower in my clothes and think about that. <laughs> it's so bleak. Yeah. Um, and yet also you read it and you're like, seems right. Yeah. You were talking earlier about transference and resistance. Yeah. Did you talk about resistance a little bit? That help me understand this. Yeah. I, so, so this idea of resistance is also like, one of those top 10 psychoanalytic concepts, like air horn noise. <laughs> but it, it, and I, I think in the German here, it's, it's Widerstand. Again, I'm sorry to people who actually uh, speak that, that beautiful language properly. Um, but like. My friend Leanne says that German is the language of subtle seduction. <laughs> <laughs> um, like resistance, I think we can think about it as we can sort of work backwards from the examples that, that, that Freud gave and that Abby has, has highlighted, right? Where in that encounter between the atheist insurance salesman and the priest, right? The priest is brought in to do extreme unction, to, to do some sort of like conversion thing, to, to make this person right with the Lord and get them to go to heaven. Like that's the job of the priest. Yeah. But instead they leave with, with an, a policy from Geico, right? resistance so the so, so we have a, a person trying to do a task which is which is let's just you know whatever you think about religion or christianity let's just stipulate in this analogy it's supposed to be the good thing it's the healing thing it's the saving of the soul mm -hmm. right in the we'll stipulate it at least provisionally yeah i mean because yeah because there is no god but but that's another matter <laughs> uh, um, in mutatis mutandis like all other things being equal we can move back analogy to like what's going on in the clinical encounter with a psychoanalyst or psychotherapist, right? The outcome isn't saving a soul per se. Uh, it's alleviating symptoms. It's dealing with someone's uh, pathology or what we could call like their problems in living. It's making them have a different relationship with their relationships. It's, it's doing something that has an outcome, yeah. which is other than the professional who's doing the thing or who, who has a task there leaving with like a, a nice feeling or a, a check or an insurance policy. Yeah. Right. So, so resistance in this sense is understood as anything that subverts or works against the progress of the treatment and the realization of the goal of therapeutic healing. Mm -hmm. Right. So a resistance there. There are lots of different ways in which resistance can happen. Some of them are like, obviously like resistance in the sense we might use it colloquially, right? Where the, an analyst says, oh, I think this is what's going on with you, or it's weird that this thing is happening, or, or basically makes an interpretation and imagine like, I don't know, like Tony Soprano flipping a table and being like, fuck you, I'm out of here. This is terrible. This is bullshit. Like, obviously that's resistance. <laughs> the, 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 that's an acting out, right? You, the yeah. treatment is over. The guy's problems aren't getting better. But you could also have a resistance in the mode of intellectualization, being like, well, Ooh, yeah. that's a big one for me. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, uh, I know. Sorry. You're the best therapist ever. In fact, you're the only that you are the best therapist on the planet. I am just soaking up your wisdom and I'm going to keep repeating it to myself and I'm going to change nothing about how I live but I'm going to agree with you a million percent. Thank you so much, doctor. And you do like the, like, like the classic like grin fuck where you're like nodding wildly and you shake their hand and then you leave. And then 
you do nothing changes. And in fact, you double down on the things in your life. And, and you don't do that. Like maybe, maybe you do want to double down from a position of like further insight. But here the therapeutic process has clearly been subverted because, well, you're not, you're not processing the insight. You're intellectualizing yeah. it. Right. Or you could also think about resistance in terms of like avoidance. Yeah. Um, if the, the, the central thing that you are there to discuss, you literally cannot bring yourself to talk about. Uh, I mean, you can, this is the thing I, I think about actually all the time, like pedagogically, I'm thinking about like, oh, we're, we're trying to do this thing. And like, everyone is assiduously avoiding, not necessarily consciously, but like assiduously avoiding, like getting to the thing that actually matters. Um, yeah. yeah. So resistance in this mode is like, and I think we can maybe understand, we could ask like this big question of like, why do people resist? And one answer, or why do people resist? And, and, and there are lots of different answers to that. But one of them is like, truth can hurt, right? Or like change can be threatening. Or like maybe you don't want to, you're attached, you could say, to your symptom. And, and one more analogy might be helpful here, yeah. which is also from that example. And this gets at the love stuff, the like, imagine the patient that goes to see a therapist. And they're like, this is the best therapist ever. And, and Freud even notes this, right? Freud says mm -hmm. that, so for, we should say here, a lot of the concepts Freud mints or names, he then will make more specific or change over the course of his, his oeuvre, however you want to pronounce that one. <laughs> um, the, and so at some point he even says that transference is, he's specifically talking about what's called transference resistance or like, like I think it's Uber Tagung, Wittestand or whatever. It's, or like he even understands that all transference might be, he changes his, his vocabulary a little bit on this, right? Mm -hmm. But imagine again, here's the patient. is like, best therapist ever. I'm learning so much from them. And then a year later, nothing's changed. Now they've got a new therapist and that therapist is the best ever. Yeah. And nothing's changed. And I'm trying to imagine like, and this is an example I gotta, I gotta use delicately, but maybe we all know somebody in our lives or maybe we have been this person who like keeps having some of the same relationships over and over again. Oh yeah. Like imagine like the friend who's like, okay, I know you hated my last boyfriend. <laughs> he was a piece of shit. He was unserious. He was immature. I don't know why I possibly, what I saw in him, but you're going to love my new one. He is just totally different. He's much more serious. He, you know, he, I, 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 this is, this is me growing. This is growth. And is then, this serious thing because of succession? <laughs> maybe it is. I, yeah, teaser, we're going to be talking about that at some point. Uh, but then you meet the guy, you know, she introduces you to him and he's the same piece of shit. Like it's the same asshole over and over again. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and the idea there is, much as we, and, and like, look, 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 so, so like two things there. One, we have a commitment to repetition, right? This is sort of this idea, a, a very basic thing. What's familiar to you, you're attached to, but also like you could, you kind of play that out. Like this is the, you know, you're, you're gravitationally kind of pulled to repeat certain things. Yeah. But the other thing is like that this stuff, which is, you know, Freud will even later talk about as like a quote unquote fatal relationship or like relationships that end the same way over and over again. You sitting on the outside of that, or even if you're on the inside of that, you're like, oh, something else is going on here besides just a relationship between person A and person B, yes. right? There's some sort of baggage or there's some sort of uh, type pattern mm -hmm. that's being played out. And, and not to, 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 to make the example too obvious, but like, I don't know, imagine like the person who like keeps on dating someone who turns out to be the same piece of shit in the way like their father was, 
right? Yeah. But, well, yeah. I mean, this is. I, I think it's 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 helpful because it shows the ways in which transference, which can be, I think, such an alienating concept, as we saw in that passage from Malcolm, the like all of all of the things that you might hold dear in terms of your interpersonal relationships as like, you know, being about an actual encounter between two real singular selves. Like that is like a, in some ways like a, a fantastical or um, phantasmatic, I guess is the word that I'm looking for um, relation. Um, but there, I, I think the example you're using is helpful because it's also showing the extent to which this is kind of everyday wisdom. Um, yeah. And the other half of this- or commonplace, you know what I mean? Yeah, and the other half of this, and this is part of what makes like Freud's uh, critique, and this is a common Freudian move, like his turning to this thing that's special, yeah. love, right? He demystifies taboos. Like he always is like, this is a thing people don't want to talk about. They think it's special. Let's go in on it, right? Yeah. In that analogy, and this is the second half of it, imagine you're the friend uh, who's being told how great this person's new partner is. You don't want to be like, honestly, I'm a little worried he's like the same guy. And you don't want to be the one, like you imagine like the friend like shows you like they're like. But you don't. Well, maybe. Well, <laughs> maybe I'm just really blunt. Well, well, that, that may, that's being a good friend, <laughs> right? But like imagine like the look on your friend's face when they're so excited for you to meet the new partner. They're so excited. You're going to be so happy for them. And then they're looking at you and you're trying to like at least – you know, in this initial encounter where you're on a double date or something, you're trying to like hold your reactions in publicly. Like you have to, as the friend, like if you're a good friend, you'll be like, I'm a little worried about this guy. Like, you know, maybe you, you traded the, the the guy who's like a, a base jumper for a race car driver. Maybe this is, <laughs> you, you know, but you can't quite say, you have to thread certain needles because you're worried about losing that relationship, right? Yeah. And, it, or at least you have to overcome certain stuff because like if you're if you're the friend being like well yeah this is this, this, your new boyfriend's an asshole then your friend's gonna start like crying like, like it would be very sad i'll never find love or they'll be hurt right and those are all difficult things to put on your friend but to bring it back to the analytic encounter and to the example of the priest much as it's the priest's job to like supposedly save your soul it's the job of the analyst to help you reflect on these patterns that you're enacting right you would be a bad friend if you were like oh yeah actually this guy is 100% different. I love this idea. You should see him more. In fact, you should get married right now. <laughs> right? That's bad friendship. Likewise, there is a subvert, there is a, even if that may be a temptation, right? Because you get to share their happiness. The temptation for a clinician in this, in this line of thinking is to be like, yes, I am the best analyst. You must be, because you agree with me, my interpretations must be landing. Or another one is, as Freud says, which is like sort of unthinkable, is, just go ahead and be like, yeah, you do love me. Let's have sex. And, and that's, of course, you know, wrong for many reasons. But like the, the, what Freud keeps on calling back to, to us here is like, well, whatever the state of love may be more broadly, the job of the clinician is to make you reflect on, or bring you to a point where you're not just reacting these things. Yeah. And they're supposed to kind of frustrate not just your own desire to uh, get you qua patient to like, receive your love but they have to overcome their own desire to be the object of it yeah they have to be like oh this is not my job right my job is actually to help you not to receive your love and then be like this is great 
So that's why you'll see all this language about like the necessity of the analyst like handling the transference or harnessing the transference or, you know, you know, I think even Freud will say master, but I mean, I think it's kind of clear that it's not something that could be like wholly mastered. Um, but Patrick, maybe you want to say a little bit about like why in addition to being a resistance, the transference is also absolutely like the condition of the possibility of change in analysis. Yeah. And I think one thing to say, as we segue into this is to, to go back to that, the quote that you read to begin with, right. Where, and this is also present in the Janet Malcolm where, where one thing that happens a lot with Freud is where like he notices something and he's like, Oh, this is an, this seems to be a problem. This is an impediment to, the work of healing. And then he's like, well, no, actually, what if we lean into this and we, we put emphasis on it mm-hmm. and we think about it and then suddenly it becomes a, it becomes a tool and even a sign of healing. Right. So we talked about this last week briefly, like vis-a-vis free association. Mm-hmm. Like it's actually very, very hard to freely associate, like to say everything that's coming into your mind because wait for it, you will suddenly have unbidden resistances. Right, yeah, like for the first time you'll have nothing in your mind, for instance. Yeah, or something pops up in your mind and you don't want to say it, right? And the, 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 the in micro, you know, the, the clinical sort of move for it might be like, well, let's talk about why free association doesn't work there. And then what some people will say is, well, actually, so it's the failure of free association that becomes the engine, it becomes a, a key feature of psychoanalysis. And then you could say that once you're able to free associate, once you don't have these resistances, that's a sign that you're doing better. So here, Freud or you're is, done. Or you're done. Yeah. So, so again, this is a kind of a paradox, right? And the idea that free association is both like impossible, but then it becomes a thing that you start doing better, right? An analogy sometimes comes up that I think self like meditation or something, which I'm not bad at, but like as a thing you do to learn to fail with grace, right? How do you do it? You're doing it over and over again. The doing of it consists of doing it and realizing, yeah. like reflecting on how you're doing it badly. I was thinking about um, transference. We don't have to include this in the podcast, but I just want to get a thought out. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I first learned about it, I thought about, because um, I think about computers a lot, I thought about browsers, browsing yeah. the internet, and you mm. get cookies every time you go to a website. And the cookie's buried in the system underneath the browser. You don't see it, but the cookie modulates how you interact with every page you go to, right? And every time you load up a web page, if you have a certain cookie that this person likes cheese, you're going to see banner ads for cheese and stuff like that. You don't necessarily know where the recommendations for cheese came from. It's buried someplace deep inside of your system. And going to the analyst is kind of like saying, wow, I'm noticing cheese a lot in my thinking. I must have a cookie someplace that's pulling this thing up. Or something like that. We, we don't get at the, the resistance there. There's not a lot of repression going on there. But it is, it's this thing that's underneath the surface that you're not really aware of as a user, but that completely changes the way you interact with the like world of the internet. Oh, that's fucking perfect. I actually I love yeah, that. I love that. Yeah. Also, okay. like the way that they like accumulate. Yes, yeah. yes. Awesome. And they can get really unhealthy and seedy if you go to the wrong places, have the wrong online experiences. Mm-hmm. The cookies can like fuck your whole day up. Yeah. yeah and you'd be like, please, I want to... I- long for the days when I was just seeing cheese. Geek Squad as therapist. They'll wipe your cookies out. I'm thinking of, I, I 
maybe it's Benny Johnson. There's there's some conservative figure on Twitter who has done this thing repeatedly well, where they'll be like, yes, look what's being advertised on the Disney website. <laughs> this is disgusting. Like, what is what are you doing to Disney trying to pervert our children? And of course, the ads are for like, you know, like, like, like gay cruises, like on a boat, like, let's go like a like boy party, like circuit parties in the Caribbean or like, like ads for like featuring men not wearing shirts. And this, this ostensibly extremely straight and even outright homophobic commentator is like, I can't believe that. Disney is putting these things here. And I'm like, and of course, everyone's like, dude, like, this is your search history, <laughs> right? I'm like, these are your cookies. The call is coming from inside yeah, the that's house. That's exactly yeah. what I was just going to say, Dan. <laughs> and, 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 in this, and, and, and in this model, right? I mean, that's actually a great way of thinking about this. Like, like what, just to sort of like give a kind of generic understanding of, of what these transfer, what's being transferred is like, or what's carrying over or what the cookies are, right? These are relationship patterns. Mm-hmm. These are... Uh, basically things, expectations that you have um, conscious, but generally unconscious about what others are going to do to you or what they see from you or what others can be. Right. And they're kind of like the example. I mean, like this is why we, we open with the example of like the, the nonverbal stuff. Right. Like, and of course, like, you know, in, in a situation where it's just an interview, if the person who's giving you the interview is just making the nonverbal noises, you know, you keep talking because you're being interviewed, right? And they're just some fucking reporter. But as we kind of alluded to last week, imagine the situation where, you know, you're in this encounter with a clinician and the clinician is not sharing stuff about themselves in the same way that you are, right? There's this asymmetry, right? You, You start talking about your childhood the clinician doesn't say time out. Now I get 25 minutes to show you photos of my family. Right. That's, that's again, that's not their job. That is, that would be a resistance. Our Disney to- Caribbean cruises. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but, but in this, but imagine now that like when you're, when, when you say something, you're talking to this therapist, you're like, you know, I can't, I feel like I'm always going to fail. Like, I feel like I'm just not a good enough person. And then the clinician says, mm, or says, mm-hmm, Right. You are, because of this asymmetry of of information, you are hyper attuned to basically the baggage you brought in with you, the projections that you have, the expectations you have. So immediately you will read into that nonverbal noise what those expectations predispose you to hear. So you'll, you'll suddenly be like, how dare you, how dare you say that I'm actually a bad person? How dare you agree with this? I'm just like, or like, you're just like my fucking dad saying that, Right. And the job of the analyst is not to be like, to not to double down and be like, well, yes, I am just like your dad. You are a worthless piece of shit. Well, like, no, you don't do that either. You f- frustrate that expectation, right? You ask someone like, well, all I gave you was a hmm, but you're having this reaction. Let's talk about that reaction. Let's think about it, right? So instead of falling into, it's a distinction, and this is, I guess, a key one, and where I can sort of like pivot, uh, is this idea that, what happens in the transferential encounter as like defined by what's happening in the clinical space and which is different from certain other types of transferences is that the clinician is attuned, is trained to listen for those moments or those patterns or those sort of like the overall shape of the relationship between you and the, between the patient and the clinician, between the analyst and analyst and et cetera. And then not, engage in acting it out 
and, and this, I think, may be one of the biggest things that we could sort of say about a psychoanalytic perspective, which is that desires or things or traumas can be put into words, and that does something to those desires, those traumas, but also what they mean for you. Or another one might be that putting things that you remember or don't really remember can get, or recollections, right, can get put into words and reflection rather than just repetition. Yeah. Um, that interpretation can and, and reflection can substitute for acting out, right? And I think that this is, to tie a kind of nice bow on this, this may be part of the... Like the ther- like, there's a technical way to describe like the, and we could we can historicize this if we want later. But like one definition, or two definitions for what happens with psychoanalysis with an eye towards resistance that we can use, right? One which is sort of a was taught to me as like quote unquote like the church definition of psychoanalysis, <laughs> like in those words, and you know, kind of slides, is that, that a psychoanalysis is the is the creation or the facilitation of a transference neurosis that is then successfully resolved via interpretation from a position of analytic neutrality. I'm going to repeat that. Uh, A psychoanalysis is the creation and resolution of a transference neurosis from a position of analytic neutrality, right? And, And that neutrality, there are a lot of terms there, and some of them we'll talk about more, I'm sure, later, right? But that neutrality isn't like, an indifference or not caring from the analyst. It's a neutrality vis-a-vis the transferential expectations. Yeah. Right? So the analyst doesn't say, yes, your dad was right. You will always be a failure. And the analyst doesn't say, no, you're not a failure. You're the best. Much in the same way as the analyst doesn't say, no, you don't love me. All love is wrong. Like there is no love. Right or being like, I, yeah, you, of course you love me. Let's let's get married. I've married all of my patients. And this is working great. <laughs> right? You instead take a neutral position vis-a-vis those desires and those projections, expectations, and you interpret it. And the idea there is that by developing that capacity in the person who's coming to the clinician for help, they take that capacity and that affects their other relationships. So they're no longer committed to the repetition of those patterns. Or if they do repeat those patterns, they do it with a bit more reflexiveness and consciousness and it's a choice rather than something that happens to them. Rather than something that's inevitable. Yeah. And unconscious. Exactly. And it's so there's this this process of more broadly of like making the unconscious conscious that can produces behavioral change or to use a technical term like the mechanism of therapeutic action in psychoanalysis involves this constant like development of the capacity to reflect or the translation of your fears or these things that you enact into words. And I'm going to invoke a, some, a lovely sort of like way that one, uh, one analytic thinker and this is Max Hernandez puts it right. And it's this idea that, um, and and this is a reading of the, the observations on transference love, right? That, that love is the motor of the analytic cure as well as the main obstacle to it. it That's lovely. It's really nice. And another way, and, and Ethel, Pers- Ethel, Ethel Specter-Person, who's another analytic, uh, brilliant analytic thinker, glossing this kind of puts it as this way of like, 
you know, in in in, ev- in what we could call real life, as in, and real here is only relative, like the relationships that you have with that person you're dating, with your family or whatever, right? Uh, your neuroses, which we could just call for now your hangups, those cookies, your commitment to those cookies, the repetitions, the neuroses interfere with your capacity to love. So everyday life, your ability to love is hampered by your transferential baggage, your neuroses. But in the treatment situation, love, if you lean into it in this enactment way, is the impediment to insight and healing. So it's it's precisely by denying that bid for love and instead being like, no, let's interpret, which, you know, we could itself think of as a very caring, loving gesture in its own way. But like, it's by denying the desire to repeat that the person who comes to the therapist for help no longer repeats in their relationships that matter outside clinical work. you something mm-hmm. so transform transference is repetition yeah I, yes it, it's sort of like i'm trying to think of another analogy to it do you know what i mean because like it is like yeah that's the philosophical core of it right but i'm trying to think of like an analogy involving like a sports or something where or, or like some sort of discipline that like where there's some broader phenomena happening and then we're like okay this is the this is the term uniquely used to describe as it happens like here Right. Like, gotcha. So like, repetition can show itself in all kinds of mechanisms, behaviors and stuff like that. But when you're specifically in a one-on-one interactive conversation, transference is the form that repetition takes in that instance. Yeah. Or, right. Yeah. Yeah. Or right. like a major feature of that encounter would be repetition. Gotcha. Right. And trying to think like another way of saying this, imagine like if, if, if our entire like social life could be understood as like, are literally just like handing things to one another. It's kind of how I imagine it. Yeah. 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 But then there were a specific thing that happens on a basketball court where people are passing the balls to one another. And we would develop a term to call that. We call like, well, this is the ball being in play, right? Right. Whatever that term we would use to talk about it within that literal arena, it would not be like to the exclusion of, of the passing happening outside the arena. It's just the ball is happening, right? So, so That totally is, registers. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. So the, like the neuroses would be the flower, but a cake is a cake. And that the, this would be the cake, the flower taking a certain form of transference as opposed to the flower, which is usually just swirling around in powder form in the it, back of my mind. Exactly. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's, it's like a ter- like there's happening here, but it seems amazing. Uh, <laughs> another way, of th- like another way of thinking about this is like, think about like all these, like these uh, 20th century physics things. And I think there is some relation with psychoanalysis where it's like the looking at a thing changes its behavior. So we need to have terms to describe like the observer effect, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, so like transference is technically and narrowly the term for, looking at how people bring their baggage to one another in the analytic situation. But once you're attuned to that, you see how they do it all outside it. Right. So to the extent to which like transference can become a thing that we can think about productively for those other relationships, then it's, then it has legs. Right. Right. That's yep. 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 This is kind of why I favor that uh, analogy that or the term sometimes where it's like all relationships unfold in the the gravitational field like transference is like the gravitational field of how people relate yeah gotcha. i like that phrase like we bring certain weights certain i guess mass and i'm not a physics doctor but like 
you bring certain tendencies or forces of attraction or repulsion yes. into orbit with one another or into collision with one another. And those like laws or tendencies of gravitational pull or repulsion are interpersonally are what we could call transference, like universally, globally. But we, we've only really can think about that because we have looked at these specific sort of orbital patterns that are happening in, in the clinical encounter. That helps you understand it. Yeah. The, the word is so two-dimensional, but hearing you explain it that way makes it very three-dimensional to me. Cool. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so are we going to hear from Dan a little bit about uh, transference in, at, at the bar? Well, I mean, when I got this job, yeah, I'm bartending. I've been bartending for a little while now. Yeah. Um, from I don't know, maybe like six months mm -hmm. or so. And uh, I started noticing pretty interesting relationships popping up between like, not only between me and, and regulars or customers, but also customers amongst themselves and each other. And I've seen some of them in and outside of work. And I've seen kind of the way behavior shifts, like almost geographically. And yeah. uh, uh, I remember I came to you guys shortly after starting the job and asked like, because I was aware of transference. And I thought, I don't know, maybe in my mind, I was restricting it mostly to the therapeutic setting. And it wasn't really settling in that actually, no, this is an acting out that happens kind of 24 seven if you're around other people. And yeah. you were saying like, actually, no, not only are you experiencing it, but like that profession is kind of famous for that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, or like, I, I also think about like hairstylists, massage therapists, mm -hmm. tattoo artists, mm -hmm. especially when there's like physical contact going on for an extended period of time where people are sharing life stories and goals and things that they're passionate about and stuff like that, that this, this is something that can like crop up between two people. Yeah. Um, and I've also, yeah. So in my time at the bar, I don't know, maybe you can tell me, is this transference? We could play, make this into a game show. Is this I transference? I mean, the answer is always going to be yeah. yes. <laughs> okay. All right. yeah, yeah. So, so I don't know how win. like fun of a game it's going to be. All right. But. We all win. Um, yeah, I don't know. I've had, I've had people come into the bar and, uh, you know, the first time they're, they're very friendly, cordial, whatever. And then two or three visits later, they're coming in only to drink water and cry to talk about relationships that are going awry. Ooh, um, I hope they're still tipping. Uh, yes, yes. I, and I've, I've had, I can, I'm almost, I know love languages are bullshit, but uh, <laughs> I can like see that some, some people like the way they show appreciation is with massive giant fat tips. And also I should hedge all of this by saying that, Hey folks at the bar, if you're listening to this right now, I do love you. I do love you. You're all very nice people. Mm -hmm. I, I do appreciate them. And that love is real in the same way that all love is real, which is to say phantasmatic. Even if it is completely manufactured by the situation of me being paid to be behind a counter and then coming in to pay me for my services. Like, uh, it's almost like that groundwork is the stratus that like all the other activities are allowed to take place in because I am firmly fixed in a box. Yeah. They know how we're going to interact and then other things kind of grow off of that. We have a baseline fixed when we first are introduced. I will say though, like, I mean, Dan, like, I mean, you're my friend and you're also my next door neighbor. Um, and producer. <laughs> um, but like even before any of those things were true except the next door neighbor part, I feel like it was really easy. And I'm not like a person – like I'm usually the person that people are like, let me tell you all of my my feelings. And I'm like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The gush mm -hmm. listener. Like yeah. I, I – I, yeah. My, my mom is like that too. Like she tells nobody anything about herself. Um, but everyone will tell her everything. And, and I feel like you're, you're one of those people who like makes me reverse my normal inclination to be the person that is like s asking the questions and soliciting. And I'm like, Dan, let me tell you about everything that happened to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like there's a positionality to it also, but 
I mean, I, I, I guess I think it's important to say that we're not in emphasizing like the transferential dimension of relationships. Any bartender would not necessarily provoke the same thing that you are provoking. Provoking is like a weird way. To, I know what you mean by it. evoking. Yes, um, yeah, I know what you mean by it. Yeah, and and in the same way, um, there would be certain like I might develop a different transferential relationship with a particular therapist than I would with with a different one, right? right? Um, or like not at all. I would be like, I actually really hate this person, and you know, maybe I can't tolerate working through that, or it's not going to be uh, useful to do so, but. I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I'm trying to say, like, what am I trying to say? Well, I, I think I'm picking up what you're putting down. Okay. Like, I, I can tell you, like, um, I don't know, without going into too much detail, like, I, I had a very sheltered upbringing. Mm-hmm. And I am obsessed with hearing people's stories because it's, like, kind of, I get to live vicariously through the experiences mm. that I didn't get to have when I was growing up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I'm kind of prone to want to listen and ask, oh, yeah, why is that? Oh, why do you feel that way? Oh, mm-hmm. interesting. Um, and a lot of the nonverbal nodding, I hear people with political opinions that I find like repugnant, awful, morally evil sometimes. Yeah. And I sat, I sit there and yeah. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Huh. Um, just because I get to get a, you know, you get to peek behind the curtain and see what they're actually thinking. It's a, I'd find it extremely valuable. This is making me think of so many things like one, like it's like the thing of like imagining like a, so that phrase like analytic neutrality again, it's not like you're not taking sides on ideas. You're just not taking sides with, with their projections or, or transferential right. desires. Like I'm thinking about like bartenders, analytic neutrality, or like the, the evenly floating attention of the bartender. Mm-hmm. Right. Where it, it's like, it, and I guess this is what I'm getting at. It would not be your job to get into a debate nope. with a uh, someone who's there to drink about what they think about Ron DeSantis. Nope. Right. In fact, that would be a bad thing for you to do. You would get fired and there might be a fist fight. But also like there is like this, I'm just thinking about the the fact that like a person walks into a bar, which is like the beginning of a joke, but also is like, that's the conjuring of a scene that's like blocked in some way. Yeah. You know, it's it's the way that we, hell, our, our icon, which which again, and in addition to being a producer, is, is, is the artist for, like the idea of like there's a chair and there's the couch. The analyst sits here, the patient sits here. And of course, there are different actual arrangements at this point in terms of how that plays out. But I'm thinking about you, you're literally on one side of the bar. They are on the other side. Mm-hmm. At a, you don't yeah. like go around and sit next to them and like put an arm around them, right? Nope. You don't start pouring them free drinks. You don't say, now it's your turn to get behind the bar and pour me drinks, right? Those would all be, uh, we call them resistances, but they would definitely be, uh, they would be impediments to the proper- They would be norm yeah. violations. They'd be norm violations. They would be impediments to the proper directionality of flow of liquor or beer. <laughs> and, and I feel like in in this type of, thing that we're talking about like structurally the interpretations are supposed to flow in a certain way right and it would be a it would be well we could use the word like it would be bartender malpractice to start pouring everyone free drinks right or to like start denying people drinks or Based but, on their political views, for based instance. On the, yeah, 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 yeah. I do have to deny drinks sometimes. But. Well, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I sling the occasional free beer. Don't tell the yeah, other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, I guess the people do drive. That's, 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 that's best play. practices, yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, that's kind of what I was getting at earlier about, like, everybody's, everybody has a parent who has to interact with the 
person at the checkout counter at the grocery store. And everybody's parents have different styles of interacting with them. Some of them like to crack jokes and, oh, no price, I guess it's free. And other people, you know, want to be cordial and other people are completely stone quiet. Either way, it's like a preset setting where that thing that's bubbling under the surface gets to come out because the setting is already accounted for. They don't have to assume anything about the personality or the upbringing of the person behind the counter. They just know, I buy, you bag. I, we get to communicate without any other baggage getting in the way. And stuff kind of comes out. Yeah, it's it's all positionality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And those, it's like those rules are, the norms are like guardrails for making sure that certain things don't happen and they're the condition of possibility of of the encounter. Yes. Right? I mean, this is, I, I allude, I gave that the church definition of, of psychoanalysis earlier, right? That kind of complicated thing involving a bunch of buzzwords, but another kind of uh, more uh, evocative definition of what happens in psychoanalysis uh, is, that, is that two people get into a room and like their agreement is they can talk about anything, but the one thing that can't happen is, is that they can't fuck. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and it is sort of like, you know, we can understand that broadly, but like, you're not supposed to like hug people per se or like, dude, you're not supposed to get touchy. Right. And I think that there is a, a way in which like with the, with the bartending thing, it is like you're, there are certain things that like the moment they start tending bar or the moment you're only pouring drinks for free or the moment you're, you're being like, no, I don't want to hear your story or whatever. There's a, that's a resistance or a subversion of the process. And the other component to this too, though, is, is about like the sort of natural disposition or, and maybe something we can even build to talking about like the love of the analyst or the love of like the, because you have to have a certain, capacity or you have to have something that you and dan i do think you have this it is like the does a capacity to elicit something from people like yeah. a willingness to be attuned to them and you've got and not necessarily immediately feel like you have to vindicate some point or occupy some position and like you can't you don't take the agreement necessarily personally and it's precisely because you're not taking it personally that you can actually let them have a certain type of personal experience uh, and I, I think that, you know, I, just to, to round out the analogy, there are definitely bartenders out there where it's like, oh, like you, I'm thinking like bartenders at McSorley's in New York, right? Where they just like, throw, like literally beer is spilling <laughs> everywhere and they just don't, they don't care. Like they, they will just, they, they don't care who you are. They don't want to talk to you or like the bartender at the, the state. Well, and then they can know. remind you of your emotionally withholding father. I was going to say, yeah, I feel yeah, like yeah. there are definitely people that would be drawn to that. Oh yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. We were talking about transference. Can we yeah. also talk at some point about, you had some examples of like why we want to have a beer with the president. Oh yeah. Like, so, so, so like, Again, like this is this can all sound very abstract, but like the idea that like we have expectations, which are again like formed in the crucible of the family, like that's the, the another yeah. key psychoanalytic thing, right? Where, where are these infantile experiences? Yeah, and, and infantile, you know, etymologically means like before you're speaking, like these these basic experiences of like primary caregivers or the people around you, right? It, it, you don't have to be. Uh, a psychoanalyst to note how when people talk about their relationships or, or, or 
we're like in relationships almost not even quite the word because we're really in the realm of the phantasmatic or i guess it's the word because we're talking about the phantasmatic dimensions of the fantasy dimensions of relationships where it's like when people are talking about extremely powerful distant but like present through media figures the templates that they use for these are oftentimes from those like infantile yeah. kind of things I, i'm thinking about like the amount of times like Oh, I don't know, like during the 2016 primaries or like people start fighting over which candidate they back more. And at a certain point, it stops. There's no policy involved in that. Not, we can reify the discussion of policy some other time. But like the like it just becomes about like, well, people like you who support this other person. Right. It's a whole series of like projections and, mm-hmm. and sort of expectations. But ultimately, you, you can't help but feel like, oh, this is playing out like everyone involved are kids in a nasty divorce, yep. taking sides with some parent, mm-hmm. right? Or or, or the kind of like absurd thing, which I, I think Americans in particular have, I, I don't, I haven't encountered this in any of the other sort of uh, places I've, I've been attuned to the politics of, where it's like the candidate who you want to have a beer with, right? Which is, I, I again, it, it it's one of those things that's like, it's much like, like the way we like build, we have like rules in our mass incarceration system that are based on baseball metaphors, like three strikes you're out. Like it's so incredibly stupid and pernicious the moment you think about it, but it's in the given. And so people just don't think about it and they lean into it. Like why the fuck would I want the technocratic administrator of the most powerful, like the commander in chief of the most powerful military on the planet to be like a guy I want to have. Guy. Yeah. I want to have a, like a, like a, a blue moon with an orange peel with this guy, or like, I want to go play catch on the white house lawn with this asshole. And it's like, no, these are not it, what in me is, 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 is it has authorized me not only to like, uh, imagine this person in those terms, but to like literally like do focus groups where Frank Luntz or someone will be like, which of these guys is most like your dad. And like, and, or, and, Again, it's it's because of a certain set and of. Do you like your dad? Do you like your dad, or or, or or even like you could even like be and note the power of these scripts, which are both personal and, and collective. Where it's like, sure, I can't have a beer with my dad, but I really wish I had a dad who I could have a beer with, and that's why I'm voting for Mitt Romney, who can't actually have a beer, but who I have these weird fantasies about. Like or like, I can't, I. I don't actually like any of Joe Biden's policies, but he does remind, he does give me grandpa vibes. And you know what? That's what I need right now. So like it's, can I give yeah. you an, another Talk example? Like, it, yeah. Just to get us away from daddies for like one second. Uh, <laughs> I, mean, I asked for it. We started with Freud, uh, but I, I had um, a mentor in, in graduate school um, who was, who's at Barnard. And it's just like this really unbelievably like, erudite and brilliant woman. Um, and, she said to me, and I'm I'm like creeping up on this, but I'm not there yet. I like she was like, there's gonna be five years of your life where you are the age of your students' mothers, and they will be the five worst years of your teaching career. And it will have absolutely nothing to do with you because they have a lot of feelings about their mothers. Um, and, and that I feel like is is a nice way. Well, it's not like nice, but it's like a it's a, it's like a quick way of just being like, oh, right. It's, it's, it's the position that it is also something about the characteristics of the person that is occupying that position that provoke these other reactions and responses. Can we talk about transference as it has been interpreted post-Freud? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think I I think I think we should preface this by saying that uh, to the extent to which this is going to involve like using terminology or dropping names that aren't like a hundred percent transparent or unfamiliar to people who are listening, mm-hmm. that's cool because we will don't like don't stress about that. We will work in we'll, we'll cover some of these figures or hopefully cover all of them and some of these concepts, right? Yeah. But like, so you could sort of say, and 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 I think actually this is an Ethel person line, right? That. Uh, transference becomes like the whereas previously a lot of the center of freud's psychoanalysis was about like dream interpretation right and this is even in the quote you read like at Mm -hmm. at a certain point in his career the interpretation of transference becomes the most fundamental feature of the the clinical project for freud right he says it's clinical practice right and it's it's very much the case also that for subsequent psychoanalysts the the emphasis on transference has become central to the point which you could even make certain definitions about how you know there's a transference it's central against top 10 concept right but but i i will say that we're not going to keep doing that i mean i mean i'm I'm, I'm done with that bit okay (laughs) first time caller long time listener i I want i want to i want to put in i want to put like like, yeah regression is going to be actually top 10 concept regression i I don't know I'm, i'm imagining people calling in to be like to make their bids for like with their fantasy yeah, like, um, but like, look, like, I, here's the thing that we can just basically say about the the fate of transference in different approaches to psychoanalysis, right? Like, you can kind of break it down in like four kind of questions or, or areas, right? Like, like questions like or differences between people what they hinge on, like who can form transferences, right? Um, can some people not do it, or are some people better or worse at doing it? Mm-hmm. Um, what is kind of being communicated in the transference and on what level that's happening? Uh, what more broadly speaking is the relationship between whatever's being communicated and what we could call like the reality status of the encounter. Mm-hmm. Right. And then fourth, and these are all of course very related. How do you kind of technically work with the transference? Yeah. Right. How do you, implicitly acknowledge it or call attention to it or like what are the boundaries that you set around it like how does it figure into your process um and so that's sort of like the the different areas where different thinkers will come down differently on it like freud we should say on the first one it's like who can form transferences freud is pretty uh pretty blunt in that in his opinion some people some certain pathology types or certain types of people uh cannot in his opinion form transferential relationships yes right so for example he famously refuses to uh see people who are in the midst of psychotic episodes or to to, to see people who are diagnosed with uh what we would now call schizophrenia Mm -hmm. right because he's basically these people are existing in a uh a kind of non-relation to reality right where it's just fantasy they don't really see you as the other person they're not projecting on you because they're basically projecting everywhere that's right. like that's freud's claim right uh he also says this too about certain types of like narcissism like certain types of pathological narcissism like you can't really get into the you're not a space for projection because basically everything in this person's world is about them right now subsequent analytic thinkers and this is getting into a subset of discussions about what we could call analyzability or like the capacity of people to be analyzed yeah or analytic susceptibility to to 
the process of analysis. Yeah, yeah. and in fact, this is actually kind of helpful too because early in Freud's work, he mentions, he draws an analogy where he's like, transference is like a, involves a susceptibility in the way that like, you know, in order for hypnotic suggestion to work, you have to be susceptible to yeah, hypnosis, yeah. right? So like a certain setting and type of things have to happen. And, you know, actually I think there is some empirical data that some people are more prone to mm-hmm. hypnosis and I think it involves, it tracks your ability to roll your eyes back in your head apparently. I don't fucking know. But like... Really? So, yeah, I think I think so. The, the ability to do certain types of... Yeah, I don't... I'm going to need a citation for that later. I actually saw this done by a psychoanalyst who was a trained hypnotist. He was able to, to get some responses out of people. There, there's some sort of scale on it. We could talk... Okay, about, okay, yeah, okay. It, it doesn't... Uh, but, but yes, so like a lot of what the history of psychoanalysis is more broadly is people being like, oh no, actually this group of people or this phenomena, which was excluded by Freud, we can actually bring into the pale of care, but also we can bring into the theoretical apparatus of psychoanalysis by revising Freud or reading Freud against himself. Right. So for example, um, in the question of like the example, people like, uh, people who are having psychotic episodes or people who are, uh, again, you would might be diagnosed as schizophrenic, what, what Freud would call people with dementia precox, right? Like precocious dementia, like early mm-hmm. in life dementia. Uh, there are certain schools of psychoanalysis. And here I'm thinking specifically of Lacanians mm-hmm. who will uh, actually be like, no, you can form, you can do analysis with these people, uh, but you have to be very attuned to like language and repetition and certain types of things, right? So immediately these questions of like who can form these relationships and how does that impact your technique are at play in there. That, the Lacan stuff gets really complicated really quickly, but uh, perhaps a better example for us to think about immediately is like the question of children, Yeah. right? Uh, and, and Freud, again, famously, like the only schizophrenic he analyzes is, is actually by a book he reads a really kind of oh, judge Schraber. Yeah. That book is wild. Oh yeah. We'll come back to that. Yeah. But uh, not today. No, not, not today. Basically he, he does a, a memoir of a, a person who has had a series of, of psychotic breaks and, uh, but the, he, Freud also doesn't really, it, with the exception of his daughter, a lot of Freud's work <laughs> with children is by remove. It's a case of little Hans, little right? Hans. Really, yes, it involves letters and, you know, yeah. But immediately, like as Freud is in his latter years, people start debating like, well, can kids, form uh, transferential relationships with an analyst, right? Right. And, and then you also get all of these uh, folks like, well, Anna Freud, but also like Melanie Klein who yeah. are doing child analysis. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and there it's, and there the question is like, and, and, and part of one way we could understand like the, what sort of is at stake there, right? Is that whereas with like people who are, again, in the Freudian model or schizophrenic or psychotic, et cetera, like there is no transferential possibility because supposedly it's all just fantasy type stuff. The concern with, or, or the concern prima facie with kids is, well, they are, they actually still have these parents in their life. They actually still have caregivers. They're still forming these infantile things. In fact, there's too much susceptibility to transference. So how could you do it? Right. And uh, for Freud's daughter, Anna Freud and Melanie Klein, who's a, another prominent psychoanalyst in, in what's called the object relations tradition kind of flesh out. They have one of the ways that they basically, they have a, a very major fight in, in the mid-century that, that involves whether or not kids can be analyzed. And, and, and one way that ultimately client, I think, kind of wins this, but the way she sort of reconciles this is by saying that, yes, kids can form transferential relationships, but that transferential relationship is happening on like what we could call a very archaic level or it involves like a... Um, 
uh, what we again, this is terminology we'll get into later, like object relations or part objects. That what's being and, and this is already getting the question, like what's being transferred, right? What is this space of transference? So these basic relationships with like goodness, badness, etc. Like that's where you yeah. go. So that's like the question of like who can form transference. On the question of like what's being transferred, and of course these are all very related, much in the way of sure, like sure. you know like we already kind of implicitly said this, but right, our model of the clinical vision of transference, right, in that first domain of dimension of psychoanalysis, the practical, implicates a model of of normal development. This is the second dimension, right? This is metapsychology or psychology in general. Like people mm-hmm. you form these attachments and they get enacted, right? Um, other analysts will have different visions of what the transferential encounter is and where transference is ha- what's being transferred there, right? Jung, who I, I don't, again, don't want to get into too much today for, for many reasons, has this idea <laughs> that, that there's a, he leans into the idea of identification with the analyst. It's, he uses a phrase like participation mystique. You, 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 the positive transferential attachment to the analyst becomes a thing you sort of work with. But he talks about how a lot of the transference is happening on the level of shared archetypes and these narratives of like individuation. And, and, and again, that's the point here is, is that the, the content of what's being shared are, is, is addressed in terms of this logic of what he calls archetypes, which are broadly, not singularly shared, uh, broadly shared, not individual family type experiences that are being sort of like processed in the encounter. Other thinkers. Wait, can yeah, I? Can yeah, I actually? Yeah. Let me just ask you a question. Yeah, sure. Do you feel like transference as a concept is radically revised in any of these schools, or is it more that the terms are being renegotiated? Look, I, th- I think one way to take the philosophical implications of what transference is, or the questions raised by the transference problem, right, is like what's really real, yeah, in a human relationship, yeah, right. Um, and you can hear like the dread in my voice as we contemplate this. <laughs> yeah. And in a lot of like ways, like, so like that's a properly radical problem. Sure. Right? And so it's the resolution of that problem or the, or you don't even know if you can resolve that problem. It's a problem you work with. Well, it's, I mean, yeah. it's, if you're calling it a philosophical problem, you don't resolve it. If yeah. you are, if we are going back to like where this comes up in Freud if in questions of clinical practice and of technique, those are, if not resolvable questions, they're at least things that can be addressed in, in concrete ways. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so then I, I would say that like, like one, we are not yeah. going to solve the problem today or whether like human relationships have anything that is, that is uh, real in them. Yeah. I don't think. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, I think one way to think, yeah, no, I, I, I I should both hope not, and and also would be pretty impressed if we did. Although I do have a faculty meeting later, so oh. it would be really nice to nail that <laughs> down for yeah. first. I mean, like, look, like I think one way we can think about this in terms of like what the work that's done by transference sort of does for subsequent thinkers is like they lean into the unresolvability or the problem of like what's real and what isn't mm. to generate different approaches to clinical practice and. To, to revise how they think about what the person is, right? So to, to, to be concrete about this, yeah. in the case of a, a, another object relations thinker like Winnicott, mm-hmm. um, who does a lot of child analysis, this way in which like the the illusory character of projections and transference or like the transferential space, which is neither real nor not real, it, it, he's like, well, we don't need to 
necessarily it has to be about policing what's real or what isn't, but we can actually talk about that space as productive as a space of play. Yeah. Right. And creativity. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that's sort of like the way, so there it's, it's like, well, actually we're going to, instead of being like, I need to deliver interpretations per se at every juncture in order to fix certain neuroses, it becomes this kind of constructive encounter where like their toys involved, et cetera, or like you're looking gets draw and stuff. Right. And, and you know, other subsequent thinkers too. And another one to, to example is maybe like someone like Heinz Kohut, who, who mm-hmm. kind of like is like their real parallels between the transferential situation uh, and like artistic creation mm-hmm. or something. Right. And so again, you could see how this is a different model for how an analytic encounter might happen because it's like well this is about self-realization self-actualization if you want to use that language but it's about artistic creativity yeah right uh and much and again this is these are not reductions of transference as a concept but they're rather kind of like uses of it in other systems right and and these are systems that center things like creative play and play is not just something for kids it's something adults do in the winnicott system too uh, but also like for color, it's about creation or self-creation, which is again, not a, a small thing. So people bring in new terms to make transference do other work. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like this sort of gets at this thing about like, and this is a, a major theme of, of, of the second half of the 20th century in psychoanalysis um, in numerous traditions is like, well, what about the fact that there is a, a quote unquote real relationship happening in the sense that there's a clock for 50 minutes, mm-hmm. right? There's a, maybe there's an HMO or some other thing. Money is being exchanged. Money is being exchanged. For services. Yeah. I think uh, Heinrich Racker, another analytic thinker says like, well, you know, like the analyst hangs their name outside the office, right? The honest, the analyst is an actual person. Right, so part of what those things seem separate to me, but okay. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that. Yes, I think Lacan would agree with you on that. But but that this is, I think that for the phrase, he's like, once your name is on the door, you're an accomplice, right? You're something. Okay, that's great. Yeah, it's that's a great line. Yeah, uh, and, and so a figure like uh, Ralph Greenson, uh, who's a brilliant psychoanalyst, will talk about like you go, you go back to the real relationship, right? And, and so it's like you talk about, like, yeah, sure, like it, you're upset at me right now for making this interpretation, which reminds you of your dad, but. You know, remember you're you're also my patient, and I'm happy you're here, and I'll see you later. Right? We'll see you next week. This doesn't have to end the way like you walked on your dad. Right? So you, you call back attention to the real relationship in this sort of way that is is grounding. And I should say to give a, a sort of final example of this, and this gets at the sort of the question of like how do you work with transference? Because I, I think, and now I'm returning to your question, Abby. Like, there's kind of a universal acknowledgement that transference, I guess, like shit happens. <laughs> and the question is, how are you going to process it? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And and you can see already, like again, this all these things are very related. Like who can form transferences, what's being transferred, uh, you know, what's about the real encounter versus like how do you work with it? With a with a, a figure like uh, like Otto Kernberg, who was one of the great 20th century uh, sort of systematizers of, of psychoanalysis and still around and brings together all these tradi- traditions, he'll create something which he calls like literally transference focused psychotherapy, mm-hmm. right? Which is um, specifically designed to work or at least he developed to work with certain populations or certain people who have what you would call depending on your nomenclature preferences like personality disorders or character disorders or or in any event people who are um actually types who who freud might not have worked with right right right. people who are, are, are 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 you know in have like mood swings like bipolar type things again i'm not i'm not endorsing any of this terminology per se i'm just using this uh in paraphrase or description, right? Yeah. But like people who are uh, malignant narcissists, for example, or people who are um, old, have certain schizoaffective features, et cetera, right? And, and what, what Kernberg basically does is he's like, 
he, we're going to form, and this you know, also involves some of Greenson's thought, but we're going to form a very clear relationship. Where I'm like, I'm the patient, you're the patient, I'm the analyst, we're going to do some work together. It may be upsetting for you, but just remember, and we're going to go, there's going to be transference that's going to happen, but at the end of the day, I'm here to help you, right? Or, and so I'm going to ground you in this. And then you, so like we're going to, you, you basically preview this interpretation, like how the process is going to happen. Then you do the analysis. And as it happens, the, the, the patient starts like toggling rapidly between good and bad, right? Oh, you're all good. You're all bad, et cetera. Like these resistances emerge that also index developmental disturbances or, or features of the pathology. And what the analyst does is, well, in the moment to moment, sort of like, well, well why do you switch there? Why did I become all good, all bad, et cetera, right? And then that happens while within the context of basically while the therapist is doing their their interpretations the therapist is also kind of holding the encounter and yes. being like yeah this is about don't worry this is going to make you really anxious but you can still leave you can still come back right i'm going to be here and then another dimension of the transfer and psycho uh, focused psychotherapy thing is that this is you could see how like something quote-unquote real like medication would be part of this right so, so you can actually like other dimensions of the relationship whether it be how many times you're meeting, whether or not the person is also a psychiatrist and is, is scripting you for something, you're talking about symptoms, right? It basically sets the frame slightly differently mm -hmm. to work with people who might not have the, the tolerance to handle some interpretations or, or might be, there'd be a real danger of acting out. Yeah. Right? So it, it gets dealt with kind of differently. But the thing I'd say kind of to end this, and, I, and here I want to invoke the work of another, yet another analyst who's really close to my heart, I think, in multiple senses, uh, which is Hans Lowald, right? Is mm -hmm. that one thing we could detect in all these different approaches and that was a play in the Freud too, is this idea of like, sure, there is the false effusion of love or the arising of like the positive transference that like, that's like, I'm going to fall in love with my, my, uh, my analyst in order <laughs> to not listen to them, right? Um, the analyst has to respond to that by not satisfying that love, right? And then, by the way, I should say there were failed modes of analysis where someone's like, yes, I will hug you or I will be the dad that you mm -hmm. didn't have. And yeah. like, you clearly, you can't, right? You can't, you literally don't satisfy the person by doing that. I think right. that's what it says. But, but it's Hans, a Pyrrhic victory. Yeah, you lose, in, <laughs> you win but lose. Um, yes. But the, the deal with this is with Hans Lowald, who's a, a brilliant, sort of very philosophically attuned uh, thinker, is that he sort of focuses on what's the nature of the affect or the disposition that characterizes the analysts continuing to show up for this? What type of attitude do, do they have towards their patients where they can survive these demands for love and reject them, right? The tolerance, mm -hmm. right? For, you know, disappointing your friend by being like, no, your boyfriend is actually the same guy, like whatever, like being the person who gives these things. Why do you do this apart from the fact that you're getting paid or like the quote unquote Hippocratic oath, right? And what, what Loa basically says is that this is actually a type of love, mm -hmm. right? You actually have to care about the person who's quote unquote sitting on your couch, right? You have to care about their well-being above and beyond your anxieties or their immediate satisfaction or even your desire or your anxiety to satisfy them in the short term. And, and so he draws some analogies here. He actually goes back to the classical tradition. He invokes Freud, uh, invokes, invokes Freud invoking the classical tradition, but also goes back directly to like Socrates himself. Mm -hmm. And he draws some analogies between that work and these other impossible professions like teaching, right? You have to care about your students, right? I think to do it well. Yeah, yeah. And, and so like, that's, I think 
one way for us to get back to where we started, where it's like, this is not love in necessarily the phantasmatic way, but it's a love of the work of care. And it's a love of, of, of therapeutic practice that involves actually caring enough for your patients to work with them. So that's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're making me think also that one, we should and will do another episode on countertransference because we have just begun to even just like scratch the surface of that today. But the other thing I want to say before before we go, um, and this I'm, I'm taking from Jane Gallup um, from from her book Reading Lacan, which I really like, um, is it so so Dan earlier brought up transference like in the situation of, of the bar we've talked about it in the situation of the classroom we talked about it in the situation of politics um Gallup talks about how everyone who is in a relationship to Freud Lacan psychoanalysis as the site everyone who's seeing it as a site of Meaning everyone who looks at it, like, or maybe who's like listening to us right now and is like, oh, I got to learn something about psychoanalysis because it is the site of some meaning that I absolutely need to have that is going to bring things into view in a way that if not, is not, if not decisive, is necessary, that that also is a transferential relationship that it, and she talks about it as like a reading transference, um, and I like the language here um, that Patrick you were using earlier of like the gravitational pull, um, but I but I like this also. I mean, maybe I like it just because there's no other people in it, and so it's like I'm like, yeah, I am in a transferential relationship with Freud, and it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> He's dead. I'm just looking. It's, it's not the person. It's the books, right? It's the words. Um, but that is something. Like, why when you read a book at a particular moment? in your life, like it could have left you cold, like when you encountered it 10 years before, but at that particular moment, this thing hits you and you can't but think, oh, this is the key to something. That that is also, when you will find yourself in the grip of that kind of, um, that kind of feeling, that that is also a transferential mode of being. Yeah. The sense that there's like a there there or like the- yeah. Even the like, and maybe this this is actually a nice callback to our, our first conversation, right? The way in which you you can sense, if not that there's a definite meaning that you have to arrive at or unpack, right? Like, but rather that there is a invitation to a process of meaning making mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and a, a a a process of making things meaningful for you or of finding meaning where otherwise you would only find, I don't know, pain or uh, sadness, regret, that that maybe that can be constructive, that that's an invitation which opens up possibilities, right? So rather than being like having the same encounter over and over again, there's a, in a repetitious flat way, there's a, in, these thinkers, and I think Freud is one of them for me, and uh, you can reread and it will alternately frustrate you and, and invigorate you in different times and different places, but that there's an invitation to engage in a process of meaning-making, to reflect on what you're bringing to the table and what could be different, and uh, that opens up new possibilities, I think. Mm-hmm.
So speaking of people who, like us, are in a transferential relationship to the field of psychoanalysis, next week um, we have two guests um, Hannah Zeven and Alex Colston will be joining us. Um, they are the editors of Parapraxis magazine um, and they run the Psychosocial Foundation. And we are going to be talking to them about why Freud is back. Um, and the other thing that I want to say is that um, we are starting two ongoing uh, series on the pod that are going to be Patreon only. Um, one of them is Patrick. Patrick, you want to talk a little bit about uh, Wild Analysis? Uh, sure. I, I, this is, so Freud has a phrase at some point, he's like very worried about the idea of analysis just that could be applied to anything and that would just be, you know, kind of spinning plates. It would spin off into self-reference or it would never end and it would be uh zany and wild and 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 uh, people would be doing it who aren't analysts yeah but might be calling themselves analysts yeah it, it, might, it might be uh you know it, it might be a little it might be a little unprofessional it might be a little unauthorized a little spicy yeah it might be a little uh, uh have some salt to it um and i think we're uh, in these episodes which we're gonna call wild analysis the plan is uh no let, let's lean into that um uh obviously not to to cheapen the psychoanalytic enterprise or anything like that but but basically to like to do some applied psychoanalysis to take up text and by text i mean fucking anything right anything can be a text at that point but to like have conversations uh that are going to be a little bit more uh well they're not necessarily ones that we're going to put on the the public facing uh without a, a patreon subscription thing precisely because they'll be a little bit more uh uh let's call it constructive but maybe also like a little bit more creative a little bit more um I don't, I'm loose. Not, loose. Free yeah. associative. Yeah. Let's go with free associative. Yeah, I think what we're doing here is actually beautifully creative, and I don't want to undersell that. But it's going to be, it'll be, it'll be different. It'll be weird. It'll, it'll be real. It'll be real. It'll. It, we'll learn a lot about things, and we'll learn a little bit about ourselves. Uh, and it, that'll be that'll be me and Dan and, and other people, and, and and Abby will be in on some of them. But basically, that's the that'll be the the, the straight dope. Uh, where uh, basically the things that we <laughs> don't edit. Uh, the things that we do edit out will show up here. So, exactly. so the, the sensor will not be the sensor will not be yeah. operating. Yeah. Um, at least not so much. Um, so Patrick's starting that. And I, meanwhile, I'm going to be taking up a project that I've been wanting to do for ever, which is actually reading through the entirety of the standard edition, which I will be doing in small segments on Patreon only episodes of this podcast with uh, friends, loved ones, um, Dan, who is both of those things. Um, Patrick occasionally, um, he has at least promised to join me for a project for scientific psychology. Um, and, uh, yeah, so some ongoing series to look forward to. Also, we've been, uh, really touched and overwhelmed by the responses we've gotten from people to the first episode and are particularly grateful for the support on Patreon, which we would like to encourage you to do. It's patreon.com slash ordinary unhappiness. But also, please do follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We'll have a Facebook up soon. Our Discord server, which you'll get access to if you're a Patreon subscriber, will be online shortly. But we we do love the the engagement with people, uh, transferential or otherwise, and are extremely grateful for your patronage, which, which makes this enterprise possible. And we're really looking forward to those ongoing conversations and also to... Uh, 
messages which you might choose to leave at our mailbox, our voice mailbox, which we've set up. Uh, the number for that will we'll give you. It's in the description. Yeah, you, you'll find it in the description of the. Uh, yeah, the point is in a way that is in no way compromised by by the phantasmatic dimensions of all relationships. We actually do truly love you. That's you, and we want to. <laughs> um, we don't want to consummate that relationship with you in any literal sense, but we do want to take it to the next level by having you engage with us on social media and by engaging with you on social media and by receiving your support. Uh, via patreon so please uh do consider those things and uh thank you for all being the best audience ever this has been an episode of ordinary unhappiness a podcast about psychoanalysis politics pop culture and the ways we suffer now in collaboration with parapraxis magazine i'm abby kluchin and was joined today by patrick blanchfield and dan yowell produced by dan yowell theme music by formal chicken <laughs>